Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. To, it's great to have all of you tune us in and turn us on to our good news segment. Today, Jeff Minow is joining us here today. And why is it that we look at our future and walk on a tight rope? What is it that we don't know, that if we did know, if we had some positive information, we could make a decision that could give us a safety net beyond your imagination? Today, Financial expert joining us here today, the importance of life insurance and top tips on achieving greater financial security. And what I want to say about this, and in, in, in as we talk to Jeff for the show, is that, you know, he is somebody, a financial advisor, right, of, with Edward Jones, and knows about what it means to be on the wave, on the crest and underneath the tide. And so today we're going to dive deep into finding out what are the most important things we should know to feel secure. Jeff, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Pat. It's a pleasure pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Listen, one of the things I want to get right into and talk about with you is this. I know one thing. I know it from my own personal experience, and I know it because I studied it for a lot of years in graduate school. Fear is the key friend of avoidance. What we are afraid of, we will avoid. And you have a ticket, a ticket to ride so that we can get rid of fear, get educated and protect ourselves. Tell us about where we are with what we don't even know about the questions we don't even know to ask. (laughs) Sure. Um, So one of the concerning pieces is that most American, their financial goals have little to no protection from the unexpected. Um, Americans do such a, many of them do such a wonderful job of saving and contributing to their 401k and their retirement plans. And they work so hard to save for their family's future. Um, But unfortunately, many of them are not adequately protected Mm -hmm. from life's unexpected risks, um, such as death. And uh, if a young family, someone passes away early, the remaining family, um, unfortunately, could be in a pretty tough spot. Yeah. And let me tell you about this. I've shared this on previous interviews I've done here with this fabulous, fabulous opportunity for us. Um, I had a favorite uncle and um, favorite uncle was coming to see me and died suddenly of a heart attack. And that's why I want to talk to you about this today, because we don't have to be unprepared for our families, for our friends. And this is really part of what we mean. But the thing that people don't know is about the misconceptions of how life insurance uh, works and how it can work for us. So we avoid taking action. Let's get educated today, Jeff, if we could. Sure. So there are many types of life insurance. Many, if you 
are employed, oftentimes your employer will give you a nominal amount of life insurance simply for being an employee. And sometimes you can augment that um, with a little bit more coverage. But many Americans, um, it would benefit them to have a personal policy separate from their employer. And the benefit of that is that employer plan may not be enough. Yeah. It could be perfect. It could be perfect for you. Um, But it might not be if you have um, several kids, if you don't have a nest egg saved already. So having a personal policy can be a tremendous safety net for you. Should you change jobs and maybe you take a two month sabbatical in between jobs and something happens to you, we want to make sure that you and your family are protected. And my recommendation is to sit down with somebody to walk through that and get a, come up with a plan of what is appropriate for you and your family. Everybody is a little bit different. Some people have more kids than others. Some people have more already saved than others. Some people have higher um, day-to-day expenses. So the amount of insurance you need is very specific to you and your family. So I would encourage anybody listening to sit down with somebody and walk through that and come up with a plan that is appropriate uh, for their specific needs. Yeah, I think the other thing you hit on that's very important to talk about is the idea of if you're with a particular employer, your insurance may be limited as well. And, you know, the way that the the employment market works these days, it is employment at will. And so you have to ask the right questions to even figure out if you're in the right game. And I think that's part of what you're doing today is looking at are we even asking the right questions? Right. Um, Let's talk about coverage for a minute, because I think this is the next thing where people are like, what? I didn't know that. Sure. There are, so your coverage through your employer that may start right away. It may not start until further down the road, depending on the benefits that are provided by that employer and the level of protection um, may be more or less than you need. Sometimes it's just based on base compensation. And if a significant amount of your compensation is through bonuses or stock plans, then that you might not be covered for enough. So some of the private personal policies that you can look into, one would be a term policy, and that is you're insured for X dollar amount for a certain number of years. Mm -hmm. So many young families choose 20 or 30 year policies because after that point, most of your major debts will be paid off. The mortgage will be a lot lower. You've had more time to save. The kids are probably out of the house or closer to it. Uh, So that's one version, and that can be a great choice for families. Another one is a permanent policy that, as the name implies, you pay that premium forever, but in return, it doesn't matter whether you pass away in the next five years or 45 years. Whenever you do pass away, your family receives that benefit. Mm. You know, what do you find uh, that people are – uh, most unaware of, shall I say, um, and as they search? Is it that we don't believe that we'll ever need to think about this particular life insurance? You know, do you find that people are more or less 
thinking, well, maybe I have enough. What do you think some of the potholes are that people step in? And then also, I think, don't you find that we become a little skeptical about finding the sources that we can trust, right? Yes. Great questions, Dr. Pat. I'd say one of the biggest potholes is assuming that your work policy is enough. Mm. And it could be, but I live in Seattle Mm -hmm. and real Mm -hmm. estate here has has gone up tremendously. So if you own a home in Seattle, you probably have a significant amount of debt. Mm -hmm. If you have kids in daycare, daycare in Seattle is tremendously expensive. If Mm -hmm. you pass away and you're the sole breadwinner, is your spouse going to be able to not only pay the mortgage, but also pay for daycare? Yeah. And so many Americans, oh, I'm covered through work. That's fine. But they don't understand. They don't realize in looking at the details that that work coverage is inadequate. So I would say that's the biggest pothole that we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't think about it, too, because, you know, we don't think that we'll ever be faced uh, with things of that nature. And so for many people, when we stop for a minute, the answers are really available to us. Now, look, let's tell folks how they can find out more about this. Sure. So a lot of different resources. I, you know, full disclosure, I work for Edward Jones. There are 17,000 financial advisors across the country with Edward Jones. So that's an opportunity to meet with a local financial advisor. You can also go to somebody that you already know and trust. Somebody that um, if you work with a financial advisor from another firm. Um, so wherever you go to for trusted financial information, um, could be a great resource. There's also a nonprofit organization called Life Happens, mm-hmm. and their website is lifehappens.org, and they are um, one of the leading organizations for just getting information out there about insurance and the types of it. They don't endorse any specific product or company. Their objective is simply to provide high-quality, independent, objective information. Mm. You know, um, one of the things that I did want to ask you about, Jeff, is, you know, in the work that you do, you see many decisions that people make. Um, I think the hardest thing for people is attempting to figure out what coverage should I get. The other thing I want to talk about, and maybe you can direct us in this way, um, we have found here that, you know, we went through a generation of people, Jeff, where if you remember you want to go back 10 years, People that were in their 50s were getting laid off from work. They were, they were being downsized. And so the idea of a life insurance policy became an illusion. The, the myth that's out there is I'm too old to get an affordable life insurance package. That, it, it, with AARP, with everybody out there, with, with insurance, how do we help those folks say, no, there's something for you too? I would say... You may not, it, you can't afford not to mm-hmm. because yes, it, there is a cost every month or every year, however your plan is set up. Mm-hmm. But if you were to have passed away yesterday, what would your family be doing this morning? Mm-hmm. That is a way, I mean, that is, and, a, that is a, a very telling question. And I think it's a very important one. We, we spend 
X amount of dollars on, on coffee and our, our phones and this and that. But again, I, not to be morbid, but if you passed away yesterday, would your family be able to pay their bills for the next 12 months? And many people have done a good job of saving an emergency fund, but oftentimes that emergency fund only covers three to six months. Mm-hmm. If you pass away, your family is going to be adjusting for, for yeah. quite a while to this new life. Um, and they're going to need more than a three-month nest egg. Yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, look, I know there are many things we could talk about, and I know this is something you're personally dedicated and committed to. So I want to thank you for uh, joining us here today. But a couple things I just want to make sure that we talk about. I know that we are now moving into the advanced technology arena, and I would love to ask you in these final minutes here left, what was your message be to people, and how can they find out more meaning? What would you say to folks to do? How, how could they best take that next step of action? Call a financial advisor and set an appointment today. Mm-hmm. Mm. You have, because the life insurance process can take several weeks. Um, and I'm not sure about every policy, but I know at Edward Jones, there's no commitment until um, the end of that process to apply. But you have to get the ball started now. You're never going to be younger than you are right now. And the younger you are, the more affordable that policy is going to be. So call now, get the policy started, meet with an advisor, and understand the size of the policy that you might need, and then the size of the policy that you can afford. Mm -hmm. Um, And a financial advisor can help you weigh the the benefits between, between those two. Wow. Um, Thank you so much. Of, yeah. Can sure. you give us some information Ab- on how we can do that? Absolutely. Um, our website is www.edwardjones.com. And again, if you go to that website, you can type in your zip code, your city. There's 17,000 advisors across the U.S. who are ready and willing to sit down, have a cup of coffee and get to know you and your family and what's important to you and how we might be able to help uh, protect you and your family. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Um, I know what a, I know how crushing it was for us to lose my uncle. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for your time, Dr. Pat. Okay, everybody, this is something that all of us are looking at here. I know I'm looking at it, and that's why I so appreciated Jeff uh, joining us here today and doing what he does. It is a a uh, beautiful way for all of us to learn how to love and make sure our love is carried forth in the way of security after we're gone. Let's take a short break, everyone. We'll be right back. Have you been searching for a push to step out and share your gifts with the world? Allow Charlene Hess to empower you to start shedding the layers of your ego that are holding you back and begin feeling connected to your heart so that you can shine your unique divine light and share your gifts with the world. Tune in to The Charlene Hess Show, Living on Your Heart's Edge, every first and third Friday at noon Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more information, visit CharleneHess.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. And, you know, today, this is really good news. You know, we are so thrilled and honored that we get to participate and share information about what is mostly going on 
in the world of health and wellness and how to thrive in life today. Dr. Uh, what I, I want to say is today, Dr. David Letter is joining me here today, Associate Professor of Medicine, um, Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. But more importantly, this is about learning. It's about learning about pulmonary fibrosis. Remember those words, everyone, pulmonary fibrosis. Now, you and I all know that this is something that many of us have heard about, whether you're watching television, you're reading about it, but what we don't know is what anyone is doing to educate the public about this deadly disease. And that's why Dr. Letter is joining me here today. Doctor, great to have you here. A welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Pat. Happy to be here. Um, this is one of these conversations that I like to refer to as invisible to the public, yet quite well known once people hear about the symptoms and what we're going to talk about today. We just don't connect the dots. And I think the interviews you're doing, the conversation you're doing, hopefully we are going to connect the dots. Um, tell me a little bit, if you don't mind, about the, the history of pulmonary fibrosis and why is it when people hear this interview and hear what you're going to say about it, they say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> Well, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, you really characterized it well. Uh, pulmonary fibrosis is a progressive disease where scar tissue builds up in the walls of those tiny little air sacs in the lung. Over time, over years, as the scar tissue builds up, people begin to experience breathlessness, especially walking up a hill or walking upstairs, and a dry, bothersome cough, lots of fatigue and tiredness. And often it's diagnosed as COPD or asthma, and those are different types of lung diseases. Eventually it often comes to light that it's pulmonary fibrosis. And unfortunately, as that scar tissue builds up, the lung becomes destroyed. And eventually this is a fatal disease for most of the people who have this diagnosis. And you know, that's why this conversation is so important because you know, in a lot of ways, it sort of mimics other things. And, you know, because of that, I don't believe that people even understand that the scarring is going on, that something like this is going on of a serious nature. Isn't that one of the most important aspects of why you're out there talking about this today? Because we're not we're talking about damage that is being done. And if people just knew about it, there might be something they could do sooner. Correct. That is absolutely correct. And the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, which is the organization leading the pathway towards a cure, has established a website called aboutpf.org, where you can go and log in and find our risk factor uh, checklist and see if those symptoms, breathlessness and cough and tiredness, might be going along with certain risk factors such as having mold in your home or being exposed to certain dusts like asbestos and coal dust in the workplace. And if some of you end up checking off some of those boxes, print that out, bring it to your doctor and say, could I have pulmonary fibrosis? Do I need a CAT scan, which is the way we diagnose the condition? And if you do have pulmonary fibrosis, it's time to make your way over to a care center. There are 60 care centers established by the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation uh, throughout the country where there are experts ready to take care of people with this condition and make sure they get an accurate diagnosis uh, and get on the right treatments. 
Um, I think, you know, what you're talking about really points to something that people probably don't know. Number one, I don't think we know how many new cases occur annually. Usually when we're having conversations like this, you know, folks don't necessarily understand the magnitude of it. So therefore, they self-deselect themselves saying, oh, that's not me. But what, what are we looking at here? You know, how many folks get this every year? And then what is it we're looking about from the population of people that have uh, pulmonary fibrosis now? Yeah, so this might sound surprising to you. So there are 200,000 people living with pulmonary fibrosis in the country right now. And each year, there are 50,000 new people diagnosed with the condition. That's a lot of people. Now, the sad statistic here is that there are 40,000 people who pass away from this condition each year. And Dr. Pat, that's the same number of people who die from breast cancer each year. So think about that. 40,000 people dying from this disease each year, 40,000 women dying from breast cancer each year. This is a major disease that's underrecognized and unfortunately in the early stages, often undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. You know, one of the things that I also wanted to ask you about, doctor, is the fact that, you know, there are very clear signs, symptom signs, whatever one wants to call them. And I think that if we don't look at these for a minute for our listeners, uh, I, I would actually regret that because there are several that when you put them together, they are unique, but individually, they're not. For example, let's talk about this dry hacking cough that an individual gets. By itself, it's just a cough. And nine times out of 10, people would not pay attention to that. But there are other aspects of the cough that people may not know about. For example, why do some folks cough when they're eating food? Tell us about each of these individually, but more importantly, what happens when you put all three together? Hacking, right. breath, shortness of breath, and then the ultimate, which usually gets blown off as, oh, I'm just tired, better known as fatigue. <laughs> right. So uh, yeah, you're, you're, I totally agree with you, and this is great. So the, the, one of the major symptoms is that dry hacking cough. So this is a cough that is, doesn't have a lot of mucus or sputum. Mm -hmm. I will say most of my patients with this do tell me about some post-nasal drip symptoms and mucus in their throat and, and coughing up a little bit of white stuff in the morning. But most of that cough is no sputum and it just doesn't go away. It's all day. It's multiple times a day. It even interferes with things they can do. Um, I have people who they're, they're, say the first symptom was, you know, I'm talking on the phone for a few minutes, and as I'm talking, I start coughing every time. Well, that's not normal. You shouldn't be coughing every time that you're speaking uh, or, or walking. Uh, so th this is a clue. This is a clue. If you're experiencing this and it's not going away after, you know, say two or three months, you have to go see your doctor. The other, the combination that you're referring to yeah. is along with breathlessness, right? Is I can't catch my breath when I walk up the stairs. Now, you know, a lot of us feel a little bit of, oh boy, I just rushed up the stairs and I, you know, I'm, I'm a little short of breath, but this is so, so bad. You have to stop. You have to stop, huff and puff and catch your breath at the top of the stairs or sometimes only halfway up the stairs uh, or sometimes in the more advanced stages, you can't get up the stairs. And when you have both of those symptoms combined, we really need to think very carefully about chronic lung diseases of which pulmonary fibrosis 
is a major one. And I agree, we shouldn't be ignoring fatigue. I know a lot of us are tired at the end of the day, but those of us who can't get started at the beginning of the day, that's a reason to go see your doctor and say, this is not normal. I wasn't like this one or two years ago. And you know what? I also have this cough and I also have the shortness of breath. Do I have pulmonary fibrosis? And again, on our website, aboutpf.org, you can find that checklist, look at these symptoms, look at your risk factors, and bring it to your doctor and talk about it. You know, I want to ask you this question because, I mean, here you are. You're one of the leaders in this field. Uh, you're also somebody that's on the leading edge of research and also possibilities. I, I got to ask this question. Given how obvious the symptoms are, what do you think is the greatest challenge that keeps people from saying the words you just said? Meaning, what is the greatest challenge from people actually saying, there's something going on here that I know is not right. Do I have this? What stops them? Uh, you know, as we age, I think a lot of us tend to write off these symptoms. You know, I'm getting older or maybe I've gained some weight in the past few years. Uh, maybe I'm not exercising enough, and that's why I'm having the shortness of breath. Uh, or, um, you know, I just have this cough. I've always had it when it turns out maybe it's only three or four years. Um, I think it's from my reflux. And reflux actually is a, is a risk factor for this disease. So I, I think we all do that. We naturally try to minimize our symptoms uh, and try to avoid going to the doctor. This is a disease that tends to affect older folks, but also tends to affect men a little bit more than it affects women. And I think we all know that men are a little bit more hesitant to go to their doctor. I can tell you as a, as a patient, I certainly <laughs> I certainly am hesitant to go to my doctor. Um, yeah, my so dad, I, I, by the way, my dad didn't even want to spell the word doctor. So, you know, you I mean, you're like, you, you just like nail it. Um, it, it, it. You know, I think what we're talking about here and doing the show, and definitely you all have put up a fabulous website. I want to make sure everybody has it. It's about... Uh, P for pulmonary, uh, F for fibrosis, uh, dot, uh, org. And when you go to the website about PF.org, what you're going to find when you get there, you're going to find a series of videos, perfect for you to look at. You're going to find information. There's also a link that's going to provide you with more information and patient resources. Beyond all of that, you can donate. And then the other thing I found important that I would love for you to talk about is some of the risk factors, meaning what part of your past, right, or what part of what you're doing now may be contributing or contributing factor. Um, let's talk about these. I, I think the number one thing everybody will point to is, you know what, I used to smoke, right? But it's not the only thing. That's, that's right. Smoking is a major risk factor for this condition, as it is for other diseases like COPD. So smoking, getting older, we see it a little bit more in older folks than younger folks. Uh, and if someone in the family has had pulmonary fibrosis, um, you may be at increased risk for the disease. There's also a family of other diseases. We call them autoimmune diseases that yeah. you're familiar with. Yep. Uh, these are diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and scleroderma. And those diseases very much increase the risk of developing uh, pulmonary fibrosis. Certain medications that people have had, especially a history of getting chemotherapy or radiation treatments to the chest, that can trigger scarring. Um, and then things in the workplace. Um, I think I mentioned asbestos, uh, coal dust, uh, silica, which can be from stone grinding, foundry work, uh, quarry work, 
Um, those can all trigger scarring in the lungs. And the most common cause of scarring that I see in my practice uh, is mold. Yes. Believe it or not. Yeah, no, I do a, believe it. <laughs> yeah, mold is a big problem. Not only can it cause things like asthma and allergies, but it can trigger scarring, long-term exposure to mold in the home. You had flooding in the basement, roof leaking, pipes leaking, it wasn't repaired. There's water damage. Even if you don't see it or smell it, you may have mold in the home, and that can cause this disease. So if you're coughing, you're short of breath, and you have mold in your home or even water damage, go, go to our website about pf.org and bring that checklist to your doctor. Okay, I want to get to this. I know we've got a couple minutes left. Most folks think about something like this and they're afraid also to bring it to the forefront because they don't believe there's a solution. What advancements have we made? Where are we? We are making a lot of progress. We have two drugs that are available. These medications can slow down the progression of the disease. It's certainly better to start these as early as possible so we can slow that early progression as well. There are also clinical trials and new research studies ongoing uh, that are identifying new treatments on, on the website about pf.org. You can search for clinical trials and research studies close to you. And then very importantly, the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation has established a registry of patients with this disease across these care centers we have in the country. There are over 2,000 patients in this registry. We have their genetic information and blood tests and all of their medical records. And this is helping us and helping scientists lead us towards a cure. Well, you know, doctor, thank you so much. And again, uh, for everybody out there, uh, please go to the website about pf.org. One last question. What's your personal message? What do you want to leave us with today? My personal message is hope. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that I, I can and my colleagues can help people living with this disease. We can help you lead a more normal and healthier life. Yeah, and thanks to you and thanks to, you know, uh, all of the folks at Columbia University Medical Center for all that they do. And thank you for getting out there doing interview after interview after interview to save lives. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you, Dr. Pat. What a great show. What a great interview, everyone. Please go to the website about pf.org. And, you know, just so you know, give this to a friend, give this to a family member that you think has these symptoms and let them take positive action. We'll be right back. Learn to live in the light and unveil the authentic you with a time of healing radio with me, Felistiana, on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Tune in every third Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific as I help listeners understand sacred fusion energy and how to connect to the spirit that fuels the very life we live. Explore the journey of spiritual transcendence and ultimately discover the path to peace, love, purpose, and wholeness. For more information, visit atimeofhealing.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You know, when I got this interview coming across my desk, and I saw that it was about the importance of mental health programs at work. One of the things I reflected upon was the eight years that I went back to school after job loss. And I remember back then that there was nobody talking pretty much about mental health programs in the workplace at all. But fast forward to where we are today. And what I want to say about all of that is that in the world we live in, in the place we live in. It's a big conversation. That's why Michelle Jackson is joining me here today. Michelle, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. 
Thank you for the opportunity to talk about some important work. Well, let's before we get going, I want to talk a little bit about your organization. So give us a little backdrop. So I'd like to set the stage for our listeners, if you don't mind. Yeah, definitely. So Unum is the largest employee benefits provider, and we offer a range of products that give employees uh, peace of mind when they are disabled or ill or have the death of a loved one. We work with employers of all sizes in all different industries, and we try to help them provide benefits to their employees that are going to be meaningful and help attract and retain talent. One of the things I was looking at, and I love this because, you know, those of us that have been affected by things like this, we become passionate. You're passionate about this, but you're also passionate about helping people overcome challenges. I I want to ask you about that. Given who you are today and what you've experienced, you know, have you experienced these challenges that you had to overcome? Oh, definitely. Um, So I I have a training as a clinician and then moved into the insurance world. And the things that I've had to overcome have definitely taught me the importance of resilience and coping skills. So early in my school days when I was a student and I had moved out and was living on my own and had made some pretty bad choices, um, I started studying what was called resilience training and learned that there are just certain individuals that have the capacity to face adversity and to drive through it or work through it. And that that is a very specific skill set. And then you've got similar individuals who, in the face of adversity, um, struggle and have a difficult time getting through it and coping. And and what's the difference in those two uh, makeups, the, the mental, uh, uh, resilience of an individual. So it was, it was intriguing to me. I wanted to figure out, you know, what could help individuals become more resilient, what could help them get through problems, and how can we help individuals overcome? Well, and that leads us to, let's just call it the state of affairs. Um, one of the things that I discovered uh, over a decade ago when I took this on to study it was I was shocked. Fast forward to where we are today, I'm double shocked. Give us an update on where we are with mental illness now. Um, and and for me, some of those statistics, people may not realize when they hear what you're about to say. Give us the update on what we're looking at in the workplace and in general. Okay. So one in five U.S. adults or 44 million individuals experience a mental illness in a given year. One in 25 individuals are living with a serious mental illness that substantially interferes with or limits their ability to work or function. So when you think about those statistics and you realize that Unum is a disability carrier, so we work with individuals that are not able to work, you can see that if individuals at that rate are struggling with mental illness, then it's impacting an organization. They're going to have workers that are out because of a mental illness. We wanted to better understand how that occurs and what employees and employers are doing about it. So we conducted the research among 1,800 employed adults, 500 of those working adults with a diagnosed mental health issue, And then the HR people that actually work in the employer setting, so 268 HR professionals. 
And we did this so that we could understand how mental health issues are impacting today's workplace. Um, what we found yes, that's that what I was just going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what we found is that employee mental health is extremely important and it needs attention in the workplace. It's prevalent. We find that mental illness results in, it's one of the top five disabling conditions that we see disability claims for. So it, it's happening. Um, we also saw from the UNAM research that there's a gap in the understanding of what resources are available. So when we polled these uh, workers as well as HR, the HR is telling us we offer resources, we offer support, we're doing things. But the employees are saying, we don't know about this, we're not aware of it, and there is not a resource available. So that discrepancy was pretty significant. So that showed us there's, there's a lack of understanding from employees as to what's available. We then looked at triggers and what's causing these types of uh, mental health issues and stressors. And number two is financial stress. Financial stress is one of the biggest triggers for mental illness in the workplace. The number one item was somebody's own health and medical condition. So again, from our perspective, when somebody's unable to work because they're disabled or ill, that's going to be the number one stressor that could trigger a mental illness in addition to their medical condition. And then number two is financial. We know that because UNAM offers disability insurance, income replacement. The worst thing that can happen to a person is to be ill or to need treatment and not have their paycheck, not have their income. So you can see that financial stress can be a, a big trigger for mental health issues. Uh, you know, I know we've got much more to talk about, but before we do, I want to make sure our listeners, uh, Michelle, have the website, how they can find out more. Because in these short interviews, there's only so much we could talk about. What's the best way for people to find out more and to find out what the solutions are? Great. Uh, so the full report, it's the 2019 Mental Health Report, is on UNAM's website at unum.com slash mental health, and that's unum.com slash mental health, and they can download the full report. Uh, you know, let me ask you this question. Uh, there are a lot of factors that go into looking at um, you know, mental health in the workplace. And you've, you've named quite a few of them. One of the things that for me that I've taken notice to here in the recent, I'd say three to five years has been the degree by which workplace bullying is going on. Now I know perhaps the statistics don't show this because it's so new in the research on this. Um, but when we're talking about the environment at the workplace, how does that contribute? You know, that's a really interesting point. And as one of the key triggers for mental health issues that our research found, um, job satisfaction is listed as the number five trigger. And when you think about stressors that can impact mental health, uh, the reports from the individuals we polled do indicate that work and environment are key factors. You mentioned bullying, and while we did not directly research that aspect in our uh, discussion, what we did talk about was stigma. And I think stigma can very closely related to bullying. 
you do not feel like you have a safe environment where you can be authentic, where you can be real, where you can talk about the things that are important to you, then you obviously are going to repress them. You're going to internalize them. You're going to feel lack of support and lack of um, collaboration. So we did find in the UNAM research that stigma it continues to be an issue around mental health and that it needs to be addressed in a continued fashion at the workplace. You know, one of the things that uh, many years ago when I was in human resources for uh, the telephone company, one of the things that we were very, very concerned about is how do we educate, not necessarily employees per se, but how do we educate managers, especially first-line managers, you know, that person that you report to, to really be mindful of the signs? Um, and let me ask you this, if we could talk for a minute. There are signs but if we are not aware of what they look like, there's close to impossible for anybody to help. But what, where are we in terms of having management be educated about the signs? I call them the signs because they're different for everybody. But, you know, there are very specific things that people see. For example, coming into work late, missing days at work, right? Um, you could just go through the list. Is there a role for management slash leadership to play here? There is, there is. And I would, I would definitely recommend, I'm not going to be able to cover it all, but if you go to unum.com slash mental health, there's a number of resources cited in there that are specific to manager training. What I would say is that the research clearly indicated, and this is the good news, employees do feel like they, or they were confident that their manager was properly trained and could handle it if they had to go to them. That's the good news. The bad news is when you ask HR that same question, only 16% felt like managers were trained well enough. So again, there's a gap between perception by employees. They felt that it was a positive, but employers and, and HR did not feel like managers were trained. There are some great resources in the UNUM piece out on our website where manager training is a component. And I think what we need to think about here is that manager training needs to be provided in a different format, in a real-time perspective, and in a format that's easily consumable, especially around mental health. There's some great companies that are offering manager training and specifically mental health training, how to identify the signs and symptoms and what to do. And they can do these in online uh, vignettes and online role-playing that are about five to 10 minutes. And the important thing is do it when it's relevant. Don't do it once a year because that's not when somebody may need it. Make it relevant and make it timely so that if a manager realizes an employee is struggling, they have access to some tools immediately. They can do a quick 10-minute training. They can identify what the resources are available and then they're armed and equipped to handle that conversation with that employee. You know, I know we don't have a whole lot of time uh, uh, left here in this interview. Uh, again, please tell folks the website if you would. Yes, so the full research is on unum.com slash mental health, and that's unum.com slash mental health. Um, one last question, and I wanna thank you for getting the word out. Thank you so much for doing that, Michelle. Um, What's your personal message? What do you want to leave folks with here today for those that are wondering, 
you know, I relate to this, but I'm not sure what to do next. I would encourage you to talk with other individuals at your work setting and develop mental health champions or mental health support resources within your organization. At Unum, we have a silent disability group, which is an employee uh, resource group that deals specifically with mental health. And we're starting to have those conversations openly and to support mental health awareness throughout our organization. I would encourage everybody to take that step and do it. Wow. Thank you so very much for to, for today, Michelle, because this is a very, very important topic. You know, I am uh, a child of a woman who suffered mental health most of her life and ultimately took her life. And so your message is more than personal to me. But my mom was not alone. You know, there are millions and millions and millions of folks that are out there today suffering. And they are suffering in the workplace as well. And through your organization, people will get help. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And uh, hopefully people will take action so that we do not lose more people. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping to, Michelle. We're going to take a short break, everyone. We'll be right back. Living Lighter Radio with Jason and Patricia. We have an ecosystem approach to your life. Tune in weekly every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific on Transformation Talk Radio as we, Jason and Patricia, discuss what's truly holding you back. We offer you the tools you need to reach your goals and at the same time be living lighter. For more information about Living Lighter, visit www.livinglighter.org. Hey, everybody. Listen, you all have heard me talk about what it is we look at with our health, what we put in our bodies, what the world says out there about everything from vitamins to aspirin. But here's what I want to say. How do we make sense of the new aspirin guidelines? You know what? Yes, there are new guidelines. Dr. Paul Gerbel joining me here today, Director of Interventional cardiology and cardiovascular medicine research professor of medicine at john hopkins school of medicine he is here for very good reason it is confusing and it is important uh dr gerbel thank you for today am i overstating this when i say it is confusing and it is it it is important i never thought in a million years i'd be saying that about aspirin well you know dr basili you raise a very important issue uh about the the this the um confusion that is out there regarding aspirin after uh, the coverage of these new guidelines that has caused confusion amongst uh, patients and amongst physicians. We've received many calls in my office from patients asking, you know, what do I, what do, I do with my aspirin therapy? Because they're confused about what they read in the, in the, in the lay press and what they've heard on, on TV and on radio. But let me just make this one important um, point and deliver this message that patients are on aspirin, if administered by a physician for a good reason. And um, stopping aspirin or changing the course of aspirin can have very important consequences uh, for the patient, such as the occurrence of a stroke and a heart attack. And it's important to distinguish between primary prevention and secondary prevention. Primary prevention, of course, has to do with the prevention of a first event. That is the prevention of a first heart attack, or a first stroke. And that is what the guideline update is addressing. Now, the guideline update is not addressing secondary prevention. And secondary prevention has to do with the effect of aspirin and the guidelines for aspirin in patients who've already had 
a heart attack and who've already had a stroke to prevent a second event. And it's in this per particular population where the risk of stopping aspirin therapy can have very dangerous consequences, such as an increased relative risk of a second heart attack or stroke of about 40 to 60%. So the, the important message I'd like to deliver is if you're on aspirin, stay on the aspirin therapy. And if you have any questions about your aspirin therapy, don't change the therapy based on your own decisions. Talk to your doctor, have a discussion with your doctor, and then proceed thereafter. But aspirin is an important uh, drug to many patients, particularly the patient for secondary uh, prevention of another event. Oh, you know, I, what you're talking about, first of all, I love the way you broke this down into very simple terms, right? Because we are talking to people that are not doctors and they just want to know, wait a minute, you know, I am confused. I don't know what to do. But I also want to say that um, for those of you listening, I want to send you to a website which has a lot of information. I really appreciate the folks at Bayer for doing this. BayerAspirin.com, B-A-Y-E-R-A-S-P-R. A-S-P-I-R-I-N.com. And the reason I'm sending you all over there is threefold. One, this is a short interview. You're not going to get all the information in 10 minutes. Two, more than we're able to talk about today, we're talking about aspirin for your heart, for stroke prevention, for saving lives, and for pain relief. So when you go over there, you're going to find a lot more information than Dr. Gerbel and I are talking about today. Um, let's get to a couple of quick things. First and foremost, Talk about the relationship between aspirin and cardiovascular disease events, because I think this is still confusing for people, but yet we have found out now through science, super important. Well, very important uh, topic. And the, the uh, evidence base to use aspirin for prevention of a second event, that is in patients who've already had a heart attack and who've already had a stroke, uh, is very strong. And so the, this is the, refers to the treatment of patients who've had heart attack and stroke with aspirin. It's in this population of per, patients particularly uh, that any change in aspirin therapy could have very bad consequences, such as the occurrence of another heart attack and another stroke. Secondary prevention also refers to patients who've had stents put in their heart, where again, stopping aspirin could have a serious clotting risk of a, of a clot formation inside of the stent. Patients who've had bypass surgery and patients who've had, um, who've undergone uh, vascular such, surgery such as carotid end arterectomy to open up the blood vessel to the head. Uh, aspirin has been shown in these patients to, have, to play a very important role. Now this population of patients uh, uh, should not deviate from their aspirin therapy, nor should the patients who are receiving aspirin for primary prevention. And again, primary prevention has to do with the, with the prevention of a first uh, event. Uh, these patients are on aspirin after the physician determines that they have a high predicted cardiovascular risk. And again, the final message is uh, that any decision making with regards to aspirin should be made by the treating physician that patients should not make these decisions on their own. Well, what I, what I love is the information that people find when they go to the Bayer site. You know, one of the things I was looking at, and I was shocked by this doctor, where I saw um, an, a, a statistic uh, that said that, you know, a doctor-directed, very clear, a doctor-directed aspirin regimen can help reduce the risk of recurrent heart attack by 31%. Um, that is staggering. 
for many people to think about. But of course, it's not appropriate for everyone. So you have to talk to your doctor before you begin. But you also have to talk to your doctor before you stop. And I think that we don't do either of those. I was also struck by the fact that the statistics for stroke is 22%, right? No, you're exactly right. And when you look at the, the, the evidence base for that, which goes back um, to decades of clinical trials with uh, aspirin, you know, we refer to it as the workhorse uh, antiplatelet drug or antithrombotic drug or anti-clotting drug. It's really based on the evidence that you've just mentioned, a, a significant effect on reducing heart attack and stroke in patients who've already had a heart attack or a stroke. So it's, it, I think a lot of people may think, you know, because they can get it over the counter, that it's not an important drug. It is indeed a very important drug and that any, um, any deviation from the aspirin therapy can have serious uh, consequences. And you also made the important point that, you know, patients should never make decisions about medications, starting them or stopping them, whether it's aspirin or whatever, uh, until they speak to their physician. I know we've got a minute or so left here, um, and I sent people to the Bayer website, Bayer, B-A-Y-E-R, folks. Um, go look at BayerAspirin.com. And the reason I'm sending you there is there's lots of information that we're not going to get to today. I know in the last minute or so, there's so much to talk about, but I got to ask you, what is your top three? If you were leaving, were leaving our listeners with the top three folks, this is what you should do. What would that be? Or this is what you should know. What would that be? So what the patient needs to know is if they're on aspirin therapy, they should talk to their treating physician if they have any questions about the aspirin therapy. They should not ever stop the therapy, whether it's aspirin or any other medication, without talking to the treating physician. Similarly, they should not start aspirin therapy until they have a discussion with their treating physician. Those are the two really important messages I want to deliver. And I guess the third thing that I would say is, uh, please vet or verify what you hear on the, on the news or in the, in the lay press with your treating physician. Don't make the decisions on your own. Um, thank you for today. One last question. Um, outside the website, what's your personal message? What do you want to say to folks today? How important is this to you personally, doctor? It's very important to me personally because I care for patients with cardiovascular disease. Aspirin plays an important role in their therapy and they should never deviate from their medical regimen until they talk to their, their treating physician. Wow. Hey, everybody. Dr. Paul Ger, uh, Gerbel joining me here today, Gerbel. And one of the things I want to say, he is doing this 24-7 to get the word out. That's how important it is. Please, please, please look at, listen to what we've said today. Go to the Bayer Aspirin website. Check it out for yourself. And believe me, if you've got any questions whatsoever, pick up the phone and call your doctor. Thank you, Dr. Paul. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Dr. Busilli. Have a good day. All right, everybody. That's our good news segment. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back.